Good morning, Johnson Ferry. Today we are wrapping up a four-part series called I'm Good. Not really. The idea is that if you walk around and ask people how they're doing, most of the time they're going to say what? You tell me. They'll say, I'm good. But oftentimes the answer is not really when you look under the surface. And today we're going to take a text in the New Testament, the very end of your Bible, in the book of Revelation. We're going to look at Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22, and we'll get there in just a minute. I want to thank you as a church yesterday and really the whole last week because of Move ATL. We had close to a thousand people at our church that did 57 projects. Yeah, thank the Lord for that. You served all over this community with first responders and schools, nursing homes, a whole host of different uh, people. And that's what it means to serve our community, love our community. And we're so grateful for how you do that on a regular basis. And I also want to invite those of you who might be new to our church, because we have a lot of new faces here. Uh, if you are praying about joining our church, I would love to invite you this Wednesday night. Terika and I are going to be there at our Discover class. Uh, we get to join it a couple times a year to help lead it, and we'd love to invite you. We're not offering a membership drive right now, but we are offering a discount right now. And if you, just kidding. <laughs> Uh, we'd love for you to come this Wednesday. You can sign up at the pergola on your way out or online. And who knows, maybe this is where God wants you to uh, put roots in for your life. We'd love to have you be a part. Today we're going to talk about apathy. One of those East Cobb, North Atlanta issues that maybe we've never thought about before. To get into the subject, I want you to think about one of the most horrific places on the planet, the death camp, the concentration camp by the Nazis at Auschwitz in Poland. Many of you have been there. A lot of our students have been to Poland because of the decades-long partnership that we've had in Poland. And a disturbing trend has emerged in the last decade or so, largely with the smartphone, and it is people taking selfies in front of Auschwitz. You can see an example of that here. Those who run the museum today and the organization that puts on the museum, they, they had to respond to people and ask them not to do that, to say this is a place where nearly 100, excuse me, nearly a million, largely Jews and Polish people and others were killed at the hands of an evil, depraved regime. And here you see the dissonance in the front, people smiling and laughing, and in the back, a picture of horror. That is an apt description of apathy. The Greek word for apathy is apatheia. Historically, it had a number of different uses. Sometimes it was positive. The example would be someone who is able to keep their cool under pressure was someone who was exhibiting apathy, apatheia. But largely today, we see it as a vice. And, and you agree with that, right? I mean, if I were to come up to you and say, you, you are so apathetic, would you take that as a compliment? Probably not. So apathy is something in our day and age that we have to overcome, even as believers in Jesus. Throughout the series, I've given you a number of resources, books. I have another one today, a book from which I got today's sermon title, Overcoming Apathy. We'll have it in our bookstore or wherever you buy books. This is a great resource if you're interested to take a next step in this 
topic we're gonna look at today. When we think about apathy, we think about being lazy, slothful, but apathy is so much bigger than that. It encompasses being restless, bored, angry. But the key word I want you to think about today with apathy, when we talk about this subject today and why it's an issue where we live, apathy equals indifference. Apathy equals not caring about the things that we should care about. It's very similar to what you might have learned was one of the seven deadly sins. That's not a list in the Bible, by the way, but they are concepts from the Bible. One of them is to be slothful. Apathy is a close cousin to that. Dorothy Sayers said this, speaking of this idea behind apathy. She said, it's the sin which believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there is nothing it would die for. A lot of you struggle with apathy, though you've never thought about it that way. And indifference to the things that you should be concerned about. There are a lot of reasons for this we're gonna talk today. And one of the lists that I have, in fact, let me just go and set that up because in your welcome guide, I don't always do this, but today's one of those days I have lots of lists for you. So if you love lists, I have lots of lists for you. If you don't like lists, I have lots of lists for you. So follow along with me. But we're gonna talk about in a few minutes some of the reasons why we struggle with apathy, but a lot of people do. As Christians, we wanna think about this topic, particularly as a follower of Jesus. And here's a question that guides what Jesus is going to say in Revelation chapter three. It's a question that we need to wrestle with today in our culture in 2023. And the question is this, do I care about the things that God cares about? You care about things, surely you do, surely you have some, some passion, but do you care about the things that God cares about? That's the real question. In Revelation chapter three, Jesus is going to say a word to the church at Laodicea. It follows six other letters written to six other churches. But I wanna go ahead and tell you right now that this is a tough word from Jesus to this church. And it's a tough word from Jesus to us as his church. There's not one word of commendation in this letter at all, but there is an entirety of condemnation because of their sense of apathy and indifference towards the things of God. So read it with me. Turn to Revelation 3, verse 14 through 22. And as soon as you get there in your Bible, would you stand up? And I would love to read for you this striking passage. Revelation uses all kinds of cryptic, apocalyptic language. Some of that we'll have time to get into, not others, but Revelation 3.14, this is what Jesus says. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of the creation of God, that's Jesus, by the way, says this, I know your deeds, 
that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and I have become wealthy and I have no need of anything. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to apply to your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. The one who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, that's the question for us, isn't it? Do, do we have an ear to hear what your Spirit is saying to your church? God, get right at our hearts today when it comes to apathy. And Lord, I pray that you would do what only your word can do, and that is to teach, to rebuke, to correct, and to train in righteousness. God, we are listening. Would you speak? It's in Jesus' name that I pray that prayer. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Revelation, obviously, is one of those books of the Bible that has a whole host of questions, and it's divided into different sections. This is the end of a section where Jesus has addressed seven different churches. These were ancient churches in the Mediterranean world. I'll show you a picture here. You can see how these seven churches almost form like a circle, and these letters were addressed to specific churches, but more than likely, they were also circular letters so that all the churches could read all the letters. And Jesus addresses this church in Laodicea. Now, we're told in verse 14 a short description of Jesus, and it uses cryptic language. It says, he is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of the creation of God. That's what it says of Jesus, that he is the one who speaks for God. He is not a created being by God, but he is, in essence, God, an equal part of the divine triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to a church that was wrestling with truth, he is the true faithful one, the amen. He is the origin of all things, and in him all things hold together. More than likely, this is a letter written to a church that was filled with false converts. It was a church that had Jesus on the building, but not Jesus in the building. In many ways, this was a letter written to a bunch of unbelievers, to this church at Laodicea. It's so, it's so tempting even now today for a church to become a church of Laodicea. So let's talk about Laodicea. Many of you have been there, it's in modern day Turkey. You can see a picture of the ancient ruins here, most of which is still underground today. Laodicea was part of three cities that were fairly close together. 
Uh, in the north, you had Hierapolis. You had to the southwest, Laodicea, and down the southeast was Colossae. All those are about 10 miles from each other, so they're fairly close in proximity. Now, Laodicea is an interesting city. It's right on that trade route, the same as Colossae. And so what happened to Laodicea is they became, they became known for a couple things. Let me just tell you a couple of the history here. It's fascinating. One, Laodicea was known for their money, largely because of being on that trade route. They were known for their wealth, their banking. In fact, one time an earthquake destroyed the city of Laodicea, and they rebuilt it without the help of Rome because they had enough money. It was a city known for its textiles. In particular, there was a black wool, a raven-colored wool that they were known for. You, you might see someone wearing a black garment, and you would think to yourself, I, let me see that. I know where that came from. You look at the tag. It's a, like, Lulu Laodicea. You'd see it right on there. You, you knew where that came from. They were known for these black textiles. They were also known as an early school of ophthalmology. Not in the way that we have it today, but they had come up with this concoction of things that was this eye salve, that when you had irritated eyes, they would put this healing ointment, on, ointment onto your eyes. And they're also known for their water. Now, that plays a key role in what Jesus says to them about being hot nor cold, but they are lukewarm. You see, Hierapolis was known for its hot water springs. You might go to a hot spring today to relieve your aches and pains. Colossae also had a natural cool spring where they could get fresh, clean drinking water. And that was Laodicea's problem. They were known for a lot of things and were a beautiful city and had lots of money and, and wealth and sufficiency and, and all that's great. But one of their big problems was their source of water. It was rancid. They didn't have a natural spring like Hierapolis or Colossae. And so the water would come through an aqueduct and the calcium buildup would make it, would make it rancid and tepid. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, verse 16, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. A striking picture, isn't it? If you went to Laodicea, you would look at this beautiful city and assume the water was good and you would taste the water and it would, it would be disgusting. You'd have to spit it out. I don't know what the closest equivalent today would be. The, the first thing that came to my mind was that stuff that we had in this building four years ago that we called church coffee. Do you remember this? which was an insult both to the word church and the word coffee at the same time. I don't know what it was, but we expected Jesus to do a miracle. Every Sunday you came in the building so you could drink that stuff. Jesus said the water in Laodicea was, was vomit worthy. And so he says a word of condemnation to this church that that's what you're like. You see what's happening? Laodicea was saying, hey, we're rich. We are sustainable. We got it, God. You know what they're saying? We're saying, I'm good, God. And you know what God is saying back to them? Not really. Not really. Notice, notice the comparison between they, how they think of themselves and how God thinks of them. Verse 17. He says, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have no need of anything, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And then this is what Jesus says in verse 18. And he uses the verb to buy. Don't get hung up on that like you can buy things from Jesus. But to a city known as a commerce city, 
They're used to buying things. They got lots of money. It's an apt verb. He says this in verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not become revealed and eye salve to apply to your eyes that you may see. You see what Jesus is doing here? What are the three things that Laodicea was known for? Do you remember? Wealth, their wealth. But Jesus says, buy from me gold refined by fire. That's a metaphor that means gold that goes through testing. In other words, come to me for a faith that also comes with suffering and hardship and difficulty. He says, buy from me white garments to, to, to clothe your nakedness. Again, what are they known for? They're known for black garments. But in the scriptures, we see that these white garments are a picture of the righteousness that we attain only through the finished work of Jesus. And then he says what? Buy for me eye salve. Remember, they were known for what they thought was a source of healing. And he says, come to me that you may truly see the kingdom of God. Buy these things from me. Jesus is condemning a church that was indifferent to the things of God, apathy. Let's hit pause in Revelation and fast forward to 2023, our culture today. Why is it that we are so apathetic towards things generally? And for those of us who are believers, even towards the things of God, I think there are four, or excuse me, three contributors I'll give you real quick. Number one is doubt. We, we live in an age of skepticism, not trusting anyone or anything. And, and doubt is like putting two feet in two different boats that want to float in different directions. It's a suspension, as one person says, between faith and unbelief. Now, let me tell you, every single believer will struggle with doubt, including your pastor. And Jude 22 says that in the church, we should have mercy on people who are doubting. Doubting in and of itself is not a sin, but if you don't handle doubt in a biblically healthy way, it can corrode your life and you will become indifferent to the things that you should care about. A second contributor is, well, triviality. Or as the great prophet in the Lego movie saying, everything is awesome. And, and we live in that way, like everything is awesome, but not everything is awesome. There are some difficult things in this world. There are things that we should care about that we don't care about. There are things that should bother us that don't bother us, and yet we inoculate and we addict ourselves to social media and other things so that everything just becomes trivial, and we don't care. The, the third contributor is fragility. There's a fun word, fragility, that we're fragile people. We, we live in a culture that doesn't encourage you to take risks and do hard things. We are a culture right now that is obsessed with the path of least resistance. It's a little bit like those of you who have children with severe peanut allergies, and this is not meant at all to not be sensitive towards that severe allergy. But it's interesting that more and more pediatricians today are actually wanting parents to give their babies peanuts and peanuts uh, butter earlier in life. Why? Because a little bit here begins to, to put into your, your body a resistance against that which might harm it later. 
The same principle could be applied to a lot of things. And if we are so fragile as a people that we can't do hard things, we become indifferent to the things of God. Now back to the text, Jesus here says something interesting because he's condemning them, but notice what he says in verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Now pause, we don't tend to think that, do we? God loves sinners. For God so loved the world, John 3, 16. Aren't you grateful because you are a sinner and I'm a sinner, aren't you grateful that God loves sinners? But notice that Jesus says, those whom I love, what does he do? I rebuke and I discipline. God rebukes those that he loves. He will discipline those he loves. If the God you worship never tells you no, it is a God that you have made up. Jesus says, those I love, I will rebuke and I will discipline. And here's the result. What does he want them to do? I want you to be zealous and repent. Be zealous. The, the word zealous as a word picture is, is, a, is a pot of boiling water. What if, what an appropriate thing to think about when he's talking about water. In other words, have something in your heart that's boiling over for the things of God. You're so indifferent, you're so, you're so relaxed, you're so casual towards the things of God. Be zealous and turn from your wicked, evil way and turn back to God, repent, he says. And then we see the grace in verse 20. Behold, I, he says, those I love are rebuke. And then he says in verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now we oftentimes apply this verse to individuals when we are making an appeal for you to come to Christ. That Jesus is standing outside your heart and he wants you to let him in. And that's not necessarily bad. But this, this is written to a church. And, and the picture here is stunning because these are people in their church singing their songs and praying their prayers and, and listening to their messages and doing the things that they do. The whole time, Jesus is outside the building knocking. It's not a Jesus church. They think they're a Jesus church. They're not a Jesus church. It reminds me of the story where this guy who had a rough past, he gets saved, awesome testimony. Someone tells him you need to go to church, so he goes to the closest church, and he, he goes in this church, he notices right away, like, I'm not dressed like most people here, and everyone's judging him and thinking less of him, and the pastor, in fact, after the service, goes down to the guy and says, hey, you're welcome to come here any Sunday, but I do wanna encourage you this week, go home and pray to God and ask him what he thinks you should wear when you come to the house of God. So the guy comes back the next Sunday wearing about the same outfit. Same thing happens. Pastor goes after the service, says, I, I thought I asked you to pray to God about what you should wear in the house of God. And the man said, I did pray about it. I did ask God. The pastor said, well, what did God say? The man said, God said, I don't know what you're supposed to wear to that church. I've never been to that church.
I wonder how many churches in this world got Jesus somewhere on the building and yet Jesus is standing outside waiting to get in. Now, the, the grace of God is in this text as well because he does say that I'm standing there and if you let me in, I will come and dine with you. This picture of intimate fellowship, eating with Jesus, dining him, and that you can overcome with him in his power and his grace. And I love that, that the, the same Jesus that's spitting them out of his mouth is the same Jesus that's saying, come to me. And the same is true for you and me. I, I wonder, have you gotten apathetic towards the things of God? In an effort to think through this and to give you some practical handles, let, let me offer the following to you. One is a simple prayer that you could pray this week. A, a prayer to overcome apathy, and it's taken from a song, but I thought it just makes a fitting prayer. It's this, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. Begin to pray that prayer. God, break my heart for what breaks your heart, God. And so that requires that you need to know what breaks God's heart. Do you know what breaks God's heart? There, there are several things that break the heart of God. And I can list a bunch of them. I, I wanna give you four here, and maybe these are four that are just the top of mind to me. There are four of 4,000 that we could talk about. But I, I see these in our community, I see these in our world, I see these in your life, I see these in my life. What are they? Number one, idolatry. Idolatry breaks the heart of God. You may say, we don't, we don't serve idols like they did back in the day when they were worshiping statues. But did you know that Colossians says that greed is an idol? See, anytime we take a good thing and turn into a God thing, anytime we allow anything other than God to exalt us or to condemn us, we have turned something that could even be for our good into a God and therefore it becomes an idol. We can make our kids into idols. We can make our comfort into an idol. We can make our spouses into idols. We can make our singleness into an idol. We can make our beauty into an idol. We can make our power into an idol. We can make our greed, our money into an idol. We can make our sports teams into an idol. And the number one picture of that in the Old Testament, God says, when you commit an idolatry as a people of God, you are practicing spiritual adultery when you practice idolatry. It breaks the heart of God. What else breaks the heart of God? Unbelief. Jesus went up to a hillside over Jerusalem and he wept. He, he wept. Why did he weep? He said that these are like sheep without a shepherd. He had a compassion for the lost. He had a compassion for those who are broken and hurting. He had a passion who thought they could find life in something other than the God who made them in his image. And he wept over that. Paul said in Romans, when he thought about his Jewish unbelieving friends and family members, he said, I wish that I could be damned so that they could go to heaven and be with God forever. Do you, do you care about the lost. Spurgeon, who has some of the best quotes around, gives us the following. I love this quote. 
He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. That's why we share. That's why we go. That's why we invite. Unbelief breaks the heart of God. Thirdly, what breaks his heart? Perversion. We, we tend to think about perversion only in a sexual way, but perversion technically means when you take something that was designed for something and you twist and turn it and now turn it into something it was not designed for. And Satan is the master of perversion, is he not? He can do it with speech, he can do it with money, a whole host of different things. And of course, in our culture in 2023, the number one way we see perversion happening is sexual. God's design for sexuality is a beautiful and glorious thing that gives him glory. And God says, I want for one man and one woman to be in a lifelong covenant relationship. And I want, that, I want sex to be the fruit of their intimacy with one another. It is a gift from God. And yet, like taking a log out of a fireplace and putting it into a, into a dry set of woods and a wildfire explodes, it's the same thing that, that our culture has twisted and turned and perverted God's beautiful design for sex into something that is destroying people. So we have a hookup culture where people want the benefits of marriage without the responsibility. Romans 1 says that when God takes his hands off of the people, Men will want to have unnatural relationships with men, women with women. We live in a day where we are inundated by sexual perversion around homosexuality in addition to a number of sexual sins. The transgender madness and confusion is taking over our society. Now, if you think I'm picking on people, I'm not. We're, We're all sinners. We all need the grace of God, amen? But we live in a culture that twists and turns and perverts that which was good into something that destroys people's lives. And the worst part of all are the number of churches that think they're doing a loving thing by affirming and commending that which God has explicitly condemned. And God says, you are a church of Laodicea that I will spit out of my mouth. Perversion breaks the heart of God. Fourthly, what breaks God's heart is injustice towards the poor and the vulnerable. I think that starts with the womb, but goes all the way to the tomb, that we as believers in Jesus, we are, we are those who stand for life, protecting those in the womb. And let's be honest, sometimes we're not so great at the protecting people all the way to the tomb. If you read the scriptures cover to cover, God has a heart for the marginalized and the poor and the vulnerable. Do you? I I could keep going. You're like, please don't. I could keep going. But you you get the point. We're, We're like people taking selfies in front of Auschwitz. Do you care about the things that God cares about? Does what breaks the heart of God break your heart? Well, how do you overcome it? How do you overcome it? Let me give you four 
quick practical suggestions, and then we're going to end by baptizing a few folks, which I think is such a beautiful picture of the life-changing power of Jesus. Four things. Number one, remember God's big story. God has a story, a meta-narrative of, of how he created the world, and yes, this world has fallen, and we need to understand why it fell and the impact of that in the world generally and the impact in my life specifically, and see how God is set apart so that Christ would come and redeem the world and change us and forgive us through the work on the cross and to be our substitutionary sacrifice. But then one day, God is going to put the world back together again, this world that will last forever and ever, the consummation of the ages. And we long for that day. And if you lose track of that big story, you will start to think that you are the center of the universe. You were created by God on purpose for a purpose, and it is to be a part of something so much bigger than you. Remember his story. Number two, Renew your daily habits. Specifically as a believer, I'm talking about those habits of spending unhurried time with Jesus, reading your word, reading the word, praying, meditating on scripture. There's a whole host of those beautiful holy habits. And I think probably the biggest obstacle for most of us in the room is social media. Not that it's all bad, there's some good things about it, but even think about even in this message, how many of you have struggled not to look at your social media or have been looking at social media because you're totally addicted? I love this John Piper quote. He says, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. <laughs> Piper throwing down. So I don't know if you use Twitter, well now it's X, what a dumb name, whatever, X, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever, there'll be a new one two years from now, who knows. What? But let's, let's just admit that we get so inoculated and distracted. Number three, put others first. Stop making it all about you and your needs and your wants and your desires and your hurts. Do those things matter? Of course they matter. But put others first, serve others first. I love that a thousand of you, a thousand of you this week put somebody else first and you sacrifice your time to go serve somebody else in Jesus' name. That is how you get to caring about the things God cares about. Stop caring about you all the time. Care about somebody else. And number four, fasting. Fasting. Fasting is a practice of abstaining largely from food. And I love what somebody says. Fasting allows us to be homesick for heaven. So here's a question. It's a, an important question, a stark question, but I want to ask you this question. Would Jesus spit you out of his mouth? In other words, are you the kind of person that you think you're good with God because you're a nice person and you got a nice life and seem to be doing well? But underneath the surface, there's a lot of dirty water there. Jesus says today, come to him. Come dine with him. Come fellowship with me, he says. I'm standing at the door knocking of this church. I'm standing at the door knocking of your heart. I want to come in. Come to him. A lot of us need to come to Jesus today. Even those of us who follow Jesus and we have become so indifferent to the things of God, so apathetic. But I don't want to end this series without giving those of you who have never responded to Jesus, an opportunity to cross from death to life, to receive the gift of salvation in Jesus. 
And I, I wanna pray with you and just ask right now that everyone would pray. Maybe some of you need to pray a prayer like this. I'll say it, you can repeat after me if this is a prayer of salvation that you wanna receive the gift of Jesus. Say, God, I believe in you and I believe in your son, Jesus. I'm a sinner, Lord. I've not done the things you want me to do. I'm not the person you want me to be. But I believe that the Son of God, Jesus, died for me. That my sins are forgiven because of what he accomplished on the cross. I believe I'll have eternal life because of how you rose from the grave. Come into my life. Change me. Forgive me. Save me. God, you know the hearts of people in this room. You know what they're going through. And Lord, we're just so grateful for how you're changing lives. So grateful for these that are coming for baptism just to demonstrate that you've changed their life. God, you're worthy of it all. And I just pray that, Lord, we see how great you are in this. So God, thank you for these lives. Thank you for how you're working today. Be with us now as we celebrate life change in baptism. What an awesome testimony. And we'll pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.